The podcast this week is hosted by our North American VP, David Long. In this episode, he welcomes Dr. Leanne Foster, head of school at Trafalgar Castle School. In this episode, David asks about growing women leaders, looking critically at school operations, uncomfortable conversations, and isolation anxiety through virtual learning. How important is it for your school, for schools in general, to look critically at how they operate and not just every few years during reaccreditation? It's hugely important. We can do everything we want at an individual level, but the power of the collective, the norming power of a school culture will almost always certainly beat out the individual preferences. So it's about building culture. And if you do not build a culture that is reflective, and with reflection comes a certain amount of humility. And I use that word carefully because I think we sometimes gender that word far too much in female environments. And when I say humility, I'm using it to mean an openness to accept that we have not arrived yet. And I think that unless you make that reflective process part of your school culture, unless you build it into classes, unless you build it into meetings with our leadership team, it's not going to take hold. And I'll give you a good example. When I'm meeting with our senior team, they just know that when we are coming to a big decision and when I've had to land on a big decision, it is very common for me at the end of the meeting to say, okay, here's where I think we are. Tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why I might be wrong. What are we missing? And if you don't adopt that as a mindset, I think you become stagnant. I think you become static. And I think more than anything, you risk becoming, having an inflated sense of your own importance and correctness on all matters. We try to make sure that we are authentic. Insight is actually one of the values of our school. And we really push for that looking at insight. And so when you're looking inside the school, is that why you have engaged future design schools to review the school's curriculum and policies and communications? Yes, absolutely. I am part of the Canadian Accredited Independent Schools of Canada. I sit on their board. And as one of those schools, we undergo a very extensive accreditation process every seven years. But to sit and to wait every seven years is foolhardy. We asked Future Design Schools, um, an organization, to come in and to help us undertake an audit, a justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion audit, because that is so important to what we want to do. And taking a look at areas around communications, HR, curriculum, instructional practice, professional development for our teachers, our boarding program, because we are, um, we have a boarding, international boarding program as well. I think sometimes you can end up in any organization in an echo chamber. And what happens is that we tend to reinforce existing practice because, gosh, it just looks so lovely and it feels so comfortable. And and aren't we good at what we do? I think that you need to be prepared to challenge yourself to have someone come in and to take a really close look at you. It was a very extensive process. We're still in the middle of it. COVID interrupted it a little bit more than we would have liked. But we're now at the point of receiving the report, receiving the recommendations, and we're moving forward. 
but I don't think we could have done this ourselves, but particularly because we wanted our parents, our staff and faculty and our students to be able to have a neutral third party confidential source to share their ideas and thinking with in order for us to really get an authentic sense of what is going on in our schools. So it was a really helpful process. And we were, we're excited, daunted, but excited by where we're going to go from here. Were there any surprises in what they found when they looked inside of Trafalgar Castle? One thing that surprised them and surprised us on a lovely note was that 100% of our teachers, staff, and school leadership reported feeling a sense of pride at being part of Trafalgar Castle School. That surprised me, particularly given how challenging the last couple of years have been around the world. We were surprised, pleased that, you know, 95% of our parents believe that the school has their child's best interest at heart. So these were really wonderful. Some of the things that were more challenging, I don't know that they were surprises as much as they were moments to pause and think, oh, yeah, maybe not a surprise, but good to know. You know, we realized probably like every organization, probably like society, there is a tension between those who are clamoring for a greater voice around diversity and equity. And there are those who are struggling with feeling that that means I'm giving something up. And how do we help support both of those voices? In Canada right now, we are undergoing a national reckoning around truth and reconciliation, around our history of our relationship with First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. And that is layered with Black Lives Matter. That is layered with challenges around Islamophobia. That is layered around challenges that many Asian Canadians and Asians around the world have been experiencing hatred and backlash around COVID. So it's become a very complicated ball of yarn that we are committed to unraveling. And what we are realizing is that everybody brings to it an investment of themselves. And as we unravel this yarn and we begin to meet out bits and pieces to voices that have not been heard before, it can challenge those who have been at the center of the room. We're going to be thinking hard about how to, how to work through that to do what is equitable and right. I've read your blog posts, um, and you said that that type of work is not for the faint of heart. Have you had the uncomfortable conversations in your community about issues of DEI and Canada's history and, and the controversy surrounding that? And, and what has that been like? It's a great question. So one of the things that I find fascinating is that we, we Canadians are quite polite. But I think one of the challenges that we can have as a nation is to not engage as much in these conversations as we sometimes need to. So part of what we are doing with our staff and faculty is providing training around having difficult conversations. Because our students, this next generation, are much more comfortable having them. We had a wonderful aha moment, actually, when we brought in a speaker who was a person of color, but it was also someone who was of an older generation and someone who is coming from a part of the country with a history around Black settlements. And it was an author. And what I realized was 
is that no one person can speak for all groups. So what ended up happening, and it was a beautiful, awkward, difficult, important moment, was some of our students felt, how can this person say these things? You know, this person was someone who was much older and who was living the values of Martin Luther King and Gandhi, a very peaceful approach to social change. And some of our students were appalled and thought that that wasn't right and that she should be marching in the streets. And, and, and is she, is she being dismissive of their concerns? We ended up having a wonderful conversation around the cross sections of identities and how age, religion, race, language, how they complicate what we would like to think are simple binary conversations around right and wrong. It was difficult, fascinating. I reached out to a couple of wonderful mentors and allies who are guiding me in my own learning around challenging topics, and they were really helpful in helping me realize when I, I remember phoning one of them and I said, oh my heavens, I completely, we had this thing and it just blew up. And she said, congratulations. It means you're doing the work because far too long we focus on not upsetting. Don't want our communities to feel discomfort. We want them to all go away feeling good about themselves, but that's not actually when the hard work gets done. Is that how a school goes beyond sort of buzzwords to create what you have described as an authentically diverse and welcoming community? It starts with the conversations, but I guess, where does that lead a school? I think where it leads a school is, I think, first of all, you have to become comfortable with ambiguity. I think you have to be comfortable with not necessarily knowing what the road ahead is going to bring. And you have to also be prepared to let go of the reins a little bit and to allow different voices to enter the room and to take the microphone, so to speak. It means us becoming much better listeners. It means us being prepared to acknowledge when improvements have to be made or when changes have to be made. It involves really listening deeply to our students. However, It also involves doubling down on our mission, vision, and our values, because we need to remember who we are, why we were founded in the first place, what it is we're trying to do as a community, so that when really difficult conversations arise and we feel that there's no black or white answer here, there's no binary, I encourage our community, I encourage our staff, our school leaders, our teachers, and our students We need to go back to our school values and our school mission. And then we need to drag this difficult topic through the lens of those things. And so far, when we do that, clarity sometimes emerges from that. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. And you have invited students to be a part of those difficult conversations. You've even sought feedback on whether the school should rename a boarding wing uh, Mm -hmm. because its namesake, it's a controversial namesake in Canadian history. 
what did the students uncover and what has the school done as a result? So it was wonderful. Uh, one of our boarding residences is named after Egerton Ryerson, who is uh, a founder in Canadian education, but controversially now is seen as one of the architects of our residential school system, which has done so much damage over the years. I brought this to the students' attention, and we have a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee, which is student-run and student-led. And I said to them, here's the project I'd like you to take on, but let's really talk about how do we do this thoughtfully and deeply and sensitively, because it's not as simple as just saying, let's change the name. They went and did a lot of research, and they presented to the school community the history of Egerton Ryerson, what he did that was good, because there were things that he did, and what was problematic. And the question was, do we believe that this name represents who we want to be? And they took it to the faculty, uh, the staff, and the students, and they basically held a vote. And what was fascinating to them, and I encouraged them to break the results out by grade level and by faculty versus students so that they could really see if there were differences. And what was interesting was um, it was um, 90% decided that the name should be changed. 10% struggled with it. 100% of the faculty and staff felt the name should be changed. And that was interesting to us. It was some of the students who said, you know, but we can't erase history. He did some things that was good. And they also did this relativism bit that we hear a lot, which was, but at the time, he thought that maybe it was for the best. But the majority of students pushed back against this. We then had those students, our committee, present to our board of directors. And they presented their recommendation to the board of directors. We have a very supportive board of directors. And the board of directors thanked the girls, our, our students, and asked, um, were they looking for emotion? Were they looking for support? Were they looking for agreement? And I actually pushed back and challenged the board of directors. And I said, you know, I think that what I would like to say is that the students are coming out of respect to the board, and they would like to inform you. But I firmly believe that this must be a student-led decision. We need to leave this in the hands of the students. And the board did. The board said, thank you. We support whatever you decide. So the students decided to change the name. And now they are in the process of deciding what the name will become. And they're being very thoughtful because they are looking for a name that will, in a sense, address or redress some of the wrong that they believe was done. So they are meeting with representatives in our First Nations community locally to have a conversation with them about how we can find a name that will honor, be part of our school's truth and reconciliation process. And then they're also talking about how can we also commemorate Ryerson and this process so that we don't lose the past, we don't lose the history but we position it as a point of growth. And then they're also talking about a ceremony in the fall with our First Nations community to truly bless this new space and to recognize it as a, a new beginning in the school's history. What a remarkable opportunity for students to become leaders 
How did they respond to that opportunity? Did they grab it by the reins or was there some trepidation? Because it really is a remarkable thing to, as a teenager, to go and speak about something emotional and perhaps controversial to a group of relatively powerful adults. Mm -hmm. How did they it, respond? They did it so well. They, they were nervous. This is my sixth year at the school. Our mission statement is challenge her mind, strengthen her voice, nurture her heart. And for six years now, I have been talking to the girls about learning to strengthen their voice, learning to use their voice, learning to advocate, to become advocates for themselves. So this was a lovely little metric, a qualitative metric for me to say, I think we're making some progress here. Because the fact that they could stand up and, and do so confidently, I think Zoom helps so you can see their little legs shaking. We've talked a little bit about recent history. The other sort of big issue that have been confronting schools and people in countries is COVID. Last fall, you wrote a thought-provoking note to Trafalgar Castle's parents about the perfect storm of online learning and isolation in this age of COVID. You said, like the virus, the opportunistic nature of social media took advantage of weaknesses in its host. More time at home, more time online, more time connecting virtually, and more time feeling and being isolated. It's a perfect description of what people have experienced all over the world in the last couple of years. So in this age of virtual everything, how can schools and teachers kind of mitigate the dangers of too much technology on children? It's so interesting, this question. There have been bright moments within this COVID experience for, for schools and for individuals, for workplaces where we've seen the benefits of technology. We've seen the benefits of remaining connected online, and that has been helpful. But what we've also seen is the degree to which it isolates. And I think you only have to look at some of the research around Instagram and around female, young female users to know that technology is harming and damaging our children. It's a little bit like we've given a whole bunch of children, the keys to a Maserati. And now we are wondering why they are driving 200 kilometers an hour off the highway and crashing. What has happened, first of all, is that we've become too enamored with the bells and whistles and the promises that technology brings. What we are doing in our school, and it's interesting that this question came up because just earlier this week, our senior leadership team was talking about continuing to push forward our strategic plan and, and our academic programming. And we're talking about in our lower school, really scaling back on the use of technology. We're talking about being more deliberate in understanding what purpose of the technology is and to not just have it be a constant presence within our school. Prior to COVID, about three or four years ago, we mandated that cell phones are not on students during the day, in their lockers, or they are in the front office when they were taken from you. And what we ended up finding was the pushback was huge, but once we normalized that as part of our school, it was actually a good thing. The problem with social media and technology right now and the interaction with COVID is that it's creating isolated little beings who are not 
having to grapple socially with the developmental task of coming together in groups with like-minded and not like-minded adolescents, figuring it out face-to-face. They are being deprived of the team-building experiences. They're being deprived of those social um, moments together when you learn to navigate the social dynamics. They're being deprived of reading body language. They're being deprived of all of these things. And yet we've put them in isolated spaces and we've given them very powerful tools. And then we've told them, it's your job to save the world and to become social activists. And isn't Black Lives Matter important? Don't you need to be the next Greta Thunberg? Shouldn't you be fighting back against what is happening to girls and women in Afghanistan? We are creating these huge expectations and we are feeding a need that they have to feel that their life has meaning. They're doing this online and then they're turning around and being really nasty to one another on social media. And I am trying to, with our students, certainly help them understand not only the hypocrisy of that, but that social activism has to be embedded in compassion and kindness and an understanding of perspective of other people. And so we do a lot of talking about performance activism. Isn't it performance activism to go on your Instagram account or your TikTok account and go on and on about how you're greening your house? and how much compassion you have for the world, and then to go on and slam someone in your class for something that she wore or said that day. We're trying to hold them accountable for this. Parents have to become greater participants in this. I don't know about you when you were growing up, but my parents very rarely worried about hurting my feelings. My parents very rarely worried about me being upset if I was told I had to be home by a certain time or in the days of telephones that had a very long cord and you had to take it into the bathroom in order to have the private phone call with your boyfriend, my parents did not care that I was limited to 10 minutes at night. I think we are caring so much about our children. We are loving our children so much that we are allowing them out of a fear of disappointing them or causing them discomfort. We are allowing them freedoms that they are not yet ready to have not quite mature enough to to handle. And so you're talking about values and sort of an ethos of compassion. That really is a partnership between school and home to develop those sense that heart and that the action that comes from being compassionate. So what really can parents do to work with the school, to partner with the school to help create that environment? We ask every parent to sign, a, in a sense, a, a contract with us every year when they join us. It's their parent commitment. We ask our parents to participate in our, our parent workshops, in our information sessions. And more than anything, we ask our parents to really pay attention to our mission, vision, and values. We hope that they are universal enough that they will meet every family where they are regardless of their religion, their beliefs, their background. At the end of the day, not everybody is going to be aligned. That's just the reality of it. But I think when that happens, the students who come to us, we still have an opportunity to say, yeah, but for the majority of your day, you're part of our community. And here, this is how we do things at Trafalgar. Young women in your care 
are in the care of you and others who really do value them. It's obvious how much care you put into the environment of education at Trafalgar Castle. I have really enjoyed this conversation. I wish we could continue. I know that you're very busy. I thank you for taking the time to, to have this enlightening conversation with us. I wish you all the best. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.